This is The Politics Lab, a podcast that puts politics under a microscope. On this week's episode, Bill and Phil discuss what to make of Trump's threat to put millions of immigrants in camps and calling his political opponents vermin. Look at the high-stakes meeting between Joe Biden and Xi Jinping, examine the Supreme Court's new ethics rules, and close with a spirited game of what's more stupid. Now let's go to the lab. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Politics Lab. My name is Phil Barker. And I am a professor of political science at Keene State College, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague and best friend, Dr. Bill Muck, who is professor of political science at North Central College, and who had a birthday yesterday. I feel like I just I had to have some sort of... That is fantastic. That is that is good stuff. <laughs> I had to have some way of celebrating your birthday. It was your 60th, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 49th, Phil. I just look like I'm 60. So, um, no, it uh, one more before the big 5-0. So, it, uh, yeah, it was it was a nice, yeah. calm, relaxing day. You and I, you know about this. Like, the older you get, the less drama and activities you want on your birthday. So, yep. a nice day, home, relaxing. And then we did some stuff with the family in the evening. That's a, that's a perfect day. That's yeah. all I want. You know, get to bed early. Yeah, it is. It is mind blowing to me that that we are almost fifty. In my mind, we're still like in our late twenties, like we were in grad school. <laughs> I, I, yes, that that really, really creeps up on you. And we've talked about this how life goes fast, and then like the the older you get, the quicker it goes. So it, uh, yeah, it is moving. It's moving fast. So, so no it, was, big, it was a nice day. No big raging parties or anything for your birthday. No, no, it uh, was very calm and, and relaxing. We actually, yes, yeah, so it was good. It was good. You know, you just want to spend a little time with the family and enjoy all that. And uh, um, yes, and uh, you had some fun. You got me a nice little gift. It was wonderful. <laughs> so. you, I almost gave you another gift. So Bill, I, I, I feel like we've talked about this before, but Bill uh, it sort of writes up my little script each week. <laughs> I, I typically anticipate that you're going to throw something uh, in there to try to throw me off, a la like Ron Burke. But you almost got me today. I don't know if you noticed the pause in my intro. I just about read what you had written and I, I briefly had to sort of think, what am I supposed to say? So that was that was a good effort this time. I almost got you. That's good because I thought either I got you with my little script uh, change of pace or you're having a stroke. And I wasn't sure which one. And I'm glad that you're glad you're OK. So both are equally likely. <laughs> That's right. So, well, the other big news, if we want to talk a little more sports, is your, your Texas A&M alma mater is paying their former coach. $76 million to go away. Now, we're in higher ed and we work on a budget um, and our department budgets, you know, you, we're talking, you know, slim pickings in terms of extra cash to flow around. Um, you know, trying to buy something at the end of the year is always tight. Texas A&M says it has $76 million to pay a coach to not coach them. That, that's really something. It's pretty impressive <laughs> or depressing. I don't. Yeah. I mean, that's like the that's like multiple years budget for lots of small colleges yes. all going to one state employee. I totally un, it's like I, I both understand that the market sort of dictates that kind of pay. But I also totally understand why it's ridiculous that a state employee is getting paid that much um, at the same time. They swear that this is not a, coming out of like A&M's general operating budget. This is coming out of, you know, athletic fundraising and whatnot. But uh, uh, it still feels like it's all coming out of A&M's pocket in some way. Right. So, yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, they can do a little uh, moving cash around here or there, but $76 million, that's that's a lot. But it's its a reflection of where college sports is, right? It yeah. is a big money sport, and that's 
I mean, I, I think about we don't want to go too down far down the rabbit hole of sports, but I think about like the Pac-12 is going away. Yeah. You know, it's just going away. And like there's so many good teams there now and it's all about money. Right. The Big Ten and all these other mega conferences provide more income to these schools. So these old conferences are no longer relevant. I know. I dream of someday having a job that I can get fired from for seventy six million dollars. That would be great. Oh. That is that is the dream. <laughs> so, all right, well, we've got a lot to talk about today. We've got some really fantastic uh, audio clips. Our "What's More Stupid" maybe the best "What's More Stupid" we've ever done. It's, <laughs> it's really a lot stupid. Of stupid. Yeah, it is a lot of stupid. So, uh, before we do though, remind everybody how they can stay connected. Uh, yeah, so the the web page is thepoliticslab.com. You can go there and find. Uh, all the information on Bill and I, but you can also find all of our old episodes and each episode's webpage has relevant uh, articles um, and stuff to read. And that is the case again this week. So you can go and click on this week's uh, episode. And and we've got an, I've got a number of articles about a lot of this really kind of terrifying stuff that the Trump people are saying about what a second Trump term looks like, um, about the Supreme Court, about the the U.S. China meeting, all of that stuff. So um, that's all at the politics dot com. That sounds fantastic. All right. We are returning to Donald Trump, even though we did this last week, sort of thinking about a, a, a second uh, Trump term. But then there was a whole bunch of stuff, Phil, that yeah. happened this week. And we, we were debating, do we do it again? And there were just too many big things. So we're going to return to that. Uh, you want to kick us off? Yeah, it does feel like this is, even though this was our top story last week, it feels like this is the top story again this week. So you know, yeah. new reporting continues to shed light on what a second Trump term might look like. Uh, last week, we discussed that Trump advisors had begun laying out plans, and, and Trump, laying out plans for weaponizing the Justice Department and targeting Tump. Trump critics with criminal charges. Uh, this week, the New York Times reported that, quote, former President Donald J. Trump is planning an extreme expansion of his first term crackdown on immigration if he returns to power in 2025, including preparing to round up undocumented people already in the United States on a vast scale and detain them in sprawling camps while they wait to be expelled. Uh, the plans that or they, that New York Times reported on in, include deporting millions, millions of people in, in these sort of immigration crackdowns, um, waiving due process protections for people uh, involved in that, ending birthright citizenship and constructing these vast detention centers um, wow. in supposedly in Texas. Trump's rhetoric has also been particularly alarming lately. Um, he recently stated that that uh, migrants were, quote, poisoning the blood of our country. Like that is that wow. it, it's like hard for me to like it, it's just unbelievable that that's the sort of language that's being used. And he also called his political opponents vermin. So let me play a brief audio clip of, of this rally where he made some of these comments. In honor of our great veterans on Veterans Day. We pledge to you that we will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country, that lie and steal and cheat on elections. The threat from outside forces is far less sinister, dangerous, and grave than the threat from within. So, uh, I mean, that is, that's, uh, well, we'll, we'll get into talking about that, but, yeah. but when people pointed out that this language was akin to fascist dictators of the past, uh, Stephen Chung, a Trump campaign spokesman responded by saying that those who try to make that ridiculous assertion are clearly snowflakes grasping for anything because they're suffering from Trump derangement syndrome 
And, and this is the part that is particularly horrifying, their entire existence will be crushed when President Trump returns to the White House. Uh, he later tried to clarify by saying that they wouldn't be physically crushed. It would just be their like hopes and dreams that would be crushed. A metaphorical still, crushing. Yes. Right. right. So, Bill, this ain't good. Uh, we know that, you know, from our understanding of political science and all of this stuff, we know that dehumanization of political opponents, calling them things like vermin and, you know, cockroaches and all of that stuff, uh, dehumanization is a massive red flag in the lead up to political violence and mass atrocities like genocide. You know, Trump's plans for immigrants and political opponents aren't subtle. I mean, he is being very outspoken about this. There's no dog whistle anymore. Um, and his advisors are embracing the vindictive uh, vindictiveness of of this approach uh, dan dresner wrote about this week about how like as opposed to four years ago like these people are going on record like they're being yeah. associated with these sorts of of uh, ideas so should we start by putting this rhetoric in context these sure. plans or, or do we start talking start by talking about why trump is willing to be so open about these plans where how do you how do you want to tackle what is to me a pretty terrifying set of of events yeah, let's start with the rhetoric, and I think that'll transition into why they're using this rhetoric, which may be the bigger question. But but yeah, I mean, I love how he starts that quote by saying, I'm doing this for the veterans, right? You know, the veterans will be will be pleased that we're pledging to root out the communists. And then, you know, he talks about them as uh, the vermin, right? And, and we should say that, and a lot of historians have written about this, uh, that term this week to say this goes back to to Nazi Germany and, and uh, you know, sort of totalitarian regimes. You know, I even th I was thinking a lot this week about Rwanda and the genocide in yep. 1994. And, you know, they were calling the Tutsis uh, uh, cockroaches. Right. So mm -hmm. you, you mentioned this, the dehumanization. Right. So if you talk about somebody as vermin or cockroaches. Right. It means that it, when you exterminate them, it's, it's not that big of a deal because their humanity isn't equal. Right. So it's just it's people just don't use that language and he used it twice right so he said it in the speech and then yeah. he tweeted it out so there's there's intentionality to that i think the other part of that that isn't maybe getting as much attention was the second part that you played where he said the threat from outside forces is far less sinister yeah. uh dangerous and grave than the threat from within yeah. and to me this is is really troubling because what he's saying is that russia china north korea those aren't the real threats to the united States, it's other Americans, right? It's those on the inside. So, you know, the United States has a history of using foreign enemies to sort of uh, mobilize the masses. And what Trump's doing is saying that the enemy is now within, right? So it's, it harkens back to McCarthyism and some of sort of the ugliest moments in U.S. history where it is we need to focus on the danger of the American public, you know, less worried about Russia, less worried about China. It's these vermin Americans, you know, going again, also, again, another historical analogy, going back to the genocide and, and World War II, right? It is the Jews that are the problem, right? Thinking about the rhetoric and the frame uh, that that Hitler put out there. And I, I know this may seem over the top, but but people keep pointing out to Trump that when he uses language like this, this is the historical precedent and he continues to come back to it. So I think it's fair to say uh, he's embracing the term, even though the historical parallel are really, really dangerous and upsetting. So, I I mean, I just I, like you, I'm, I'm shocked that he continues to use it. What was well, I don't know. What was your your reaction to all of this? 
I mean, I, I, it's, it is, it's terrifying to me. I mean, I yeah. think that's the thing I, from, from, you know, looking at, you know, you and I have talked a lot about, you know, we've, we've done work with, with, you know, mass atrocity, genocide stuff. I've done work with like religious violence. I, I mean, this yeah. checks all those boxes, right? So when you, when it's, it is the combination of, I mean, the rhetoric itself is, is bad, but if, you know, if you don't take these sort of each as an individual thing and you look at the, the, the totality of the, the situation we're in, the rhetoric that, that Trump is using. Um, we've talked about like this idea of existential threat. So, so Trump and, and, you know, his circle, um, and his supporters, right. The sort of semi-loyal Democrats, if we go back yeah. to, to, uh, Levitsky and, and Ziblatt, um, they're framing this as like, this is the future of America, right? These are people who, who like, if, if they are, if, if the opposition wins, then your way of life is going to be destroyed. So the stakes are really high. And then it's also using this language of sort of, again, when you look at like terrorism and, and all that other stuff, it, it is the language of good versus evil, right? So it's now that they're, um, you know, they're, the stakes are high for you and the people who are opposed to us are, are don't just disagree about the future of the country they're evil and they're subhuman right so they're like all of this adds up to um it's you shouldn't feel bad if you have to resort to violence and in fact violence is is you know that's the thing right like when you when you think about when you start describing people as pests right as vermin as cockroaches as rats or whatever that's the way you you know the solution is you know extermination and so um again it is it is I, i don't know i go back and forth between thinking about like what you're saying with it, which is that he continues to be like the, this is pointed out to him and he continues to do it, which is dangerous. But I, I am like the, the more he does this, I'm sort of drawn to the, or more convinced of the opposite, which is, it's not that it's a coincidence. It's not that he likes this language and the comparison doesn't deter him. It's that he's going for the comparison, right? I mean, this is that what Dan Dresner argues, which is he, he has this article that we, you sent me that I put up on the webpage, Which is that the, and we talked a little bit about this last week as well, that the authoritarianism is sort of the point, right? I mean, this yeah. is what he's appealing to people who want this, this sort of, you know, vindictive, um, action. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, again, from a political science standpoint, we have checked all the boxes for, um, how like this is the sort of situation. It does not mean that it will end badly. But this is the sort of situation yeah. that ends badly so often um, in, in you know, throughout history. It's just it's it is and it's it's appalling to watch, but it's like heartbreaking that this is the sort of rhetoric that is appealing to such a big chunk of the country. It is. And it's it's surprising that at this point in our history, it's still there. Right. I think it's, it's disappointing. And I liked what you said, you know, the referencing Dan Dresner and some other scholars who've talked about the cruelty, the authoritarianism is the point. Right. That there's, uh, you know, the Dresner piece talks about that scholars suggest that there, there are some suggesting that there's a sense of camaraderie that comes from that cruelty. Thinking about, you know, this gets us maybe to the immigration stuff. I mean, they're talking about rounding up immigrants, millions of immigrants. Immigrants in camps. I mean, I, I, I when I saw that, it was sort of stunning. Like they're not. It, maybe that's some sort of behind the scenes secret memo. No, these are things that they are, are publicly talking about. There's this organization, Project 2025, which is sort of leading up this initiative, um, and and they're organizing a team 
they're recruiting tens of thousands of people to be in these positions. And, and what they're looking for is people who would be loyal to Trump. They're talking about recruiting lawyers who are not going to be difficult, right? Who are more flexible according to Trump's ideology. I mean, all of this is 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 really, really sort of terrifying stuff. And and one hopes that Trump's never going to get close to the, the presidency anymore. But but, I, you know, he's he's preparing to push back against any remaining checks that he felt in, in his first administration. So, it, um, yeah, I, I really think that there's I think your point that the cruelty is there and this is sort of the strategy. And even if for him, if it's all about power, the net effect is just this. It's, it's I mean, you know, it's sort of it's, it's fascist in that sense. And I, yep. I know we're always reluctant to use those terms, but I've gotten to the point where I don't know how to describe it if you don't 100%. use the historical comparison, like the, the language, the rhetoric. The rounding of people up, calling them vermin. I mean, that is, uh, you know, that's fascist sort of history. And so I don't know. I don't know how else to describe it. I, so, I, I mean, I came to the same point this week. I, I, it's it's, um, uh, y- you know, I, we've, we've talked before. I, I, I don't I don't remember how long ago, but I remember we talked about it or people who issued warnings that this was sort of, yeah. you know, fascist, uh, sort of a fascist approach. And, and and you and I debated that. And is this a new form of fascism? And I, it doesn't, I, I, you know, I'm, I've been somewhat reluctant to make that leap because of, of, you know, it feels like an extreme comparison, but I don't know, like, again, from a sort of social science standpoint, I don't know how yeah. else to categorize this sort of movement. And when, when you start looking at what it means to be fascist, this sort of ultra nationalist kind of right wing, yeah. um, you know, the, the nationalism part, the, the sort of militarization t- part of the, the, there's oftentimes this kind of social strata, right? So fascist movements sort of elevate the true, um, the true, you know, patriots, the true yeah. citizens over others, the scapegoating, the, the, um, the targeting of opposition, right? Like the, the, the harsh targeting of anyone who is opposed. So, I mean, in the last week and a half, we've talked about the, the plan to go after opponents or critics, the plan to round up, um, you know, uh, I mean, it's, it's a plan to, to round up Brown people, right? I mean, this is not a plan to round up Canadians and send them back to Canada. (laughs) Um, it, It is this kind of white nationalism taken to, and, and the, the authoritarian element of it increasingly is, you know, clearer and clearer as well. And so I, you know, other than, again, you know, like if, if it feels like if this were to go, you know, in an, in a terrible, awful direction, uh, you know, a hundred years from now, you would look back and say, well, of course. Right. I mean, it's like yeah, people right. now who are like, how did you not see what, you know, whatever the, uh, we talk about it now, how did people not see the Rwandan genocide or the, you know, yeah. the Holocaust or whatever coming and, and it, the clues are all there and it feels like this is, this is, it doesn't mean that's what's going to happen, but the clues are all there, right? All the warning lights are, are going off. This is is so true, and and as you think about, it, so you ticked through a number of those uh, traditional categories of what constitutes a fascist regime. I mean, I think the the contrast of you know fascism believes in a powerful state, and for a long time. Uh, the conservative movement was about a small state, right? You want a, a sort of a night watchman type of state where, you, you know, it's a minimal engagement. But this, the Trump Republican and the MAGA movement is no longer about a small state. It's about a big state, right? And I think that's one of the more, the big contrast between the old conservative movement and you use that big state to prosecute your opponents, right? And they are, they are talking about like, you know, they don't like the deep state, 
but they're they're talking about replacing it with a different type of state. It's not like we're going to cut the deep state and and you know become a sort of Lockean uh, small state government. It's it's you replace those people with loyalists who are going to pursue your particular agenda, which as in the quote he said will will preserve America. Right? It's about protecting this particular vision of America. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, it is just so spot on in so many different ways. And and like you said. People have pointed these comparisons out to Trump over and over and over again to say the things you're doing, you know, the historical parallels are really dangerous. And he doubles down on it and he adds to it and adds to it. And, um, yeah, it's it's hard to deny that those are at least impulses of his at this point. Well, I mean, you go back to, you know, the the. The you know in the January sixth stuff like he talked about it at that time about like the, yeah. the when people pointed out to him that there were sort of white nationalist groups or Charlottesville or whatever and he's yes. repeatedly talked about how these are my people right and yeah. so that's part of the reason why he's not it doesn't mean that that's all of his people but though that group of people are his people and and he's yeah. not going to push back against them so I mean it's not that he's unaware right it's not he he is aware of what he's saying um, and and going all all in on it. I, it, it really is. I mean, the, and it really, like what you were saying is also really fascinating. It's revealing to look at the, the sorts of rhetoric that the Republican party had used for so long about the small state, but also, you know, I think about like the, the attachment to guns uh, and the second amendment is often all about a fear of the state, right? That like, we have to be able to defend ourselves. And and what you now have is a Republican party who is like cheering on the arming of the state to come after people. And it's revealing that as long as, you know, as long as I'm not one of those people, it's coming, they're coming after, you know, then, then I'm, I'm more comfortable with it. But yeah, I mean, it, it is, it's just, um, it's, it, 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 I don't know. It, it again shows the extent to which, it has become about power and not about sort of principle, right? It's about holding on yeah. to 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 you know your position in in society and position in government. Um, it's, it's and, and the it, yeah. we talked a little bit about this last week. The difference between you know Trump five years ago is that. Uh, he's more organized, right? They, they've got real individuals. There are going to be no more adults in the room. We've used that term in the, he's going to find people who are going to support this vision. And they're saying it all out loud, right? They're being intentional about it. So they want people to understand because they see it as an appealing uh, message, right? That this is going to be part of the the campaign, part of the platform. Um, and that sort of divisive rhetoric is, is really, really dangerous. So I, you know, I, I hope we don't have to come back to this next week. I hope next week it's something yeah. non-Trump uh, and fascist related. <laughs> so. But I mean, I, this is, a, again, the, like, I know we need to move on, but the part that terrifies me is that we are facing a, a year in which he is the likely nominee. And and I think back to what we've, you know, we've talked about like this, the, the sort of sparks that set off vile. So we've, we've got yeah. this situation where the rhetoric is all about, you know, all pointing towards violence and, and we're going to have either a, a, you know, a, a, a criminal conviction of Donald Trump or yeah. he's going to be the nominee. And, and if, if 2020 was bad, right. If, if this is the buildup, like there's, there's no reason to believe that Donald Trump will be uh, anything but, you know, more all in on sort of election denialism and the use of, of, you know, intimidation to get hit. And, and again, I don't know how we, I, I sure hope that we find a way through the next, yeah. uh, you know, year and a half. But it's it's going to be um, it's going to be scary. 
Because his livelihood and freedom will be dependent upon him winning, right? Yeah. So there's no there's no reason for restraint on his part. So yeah, I know all of that. I I, I echo your your concern. So yeah. all right, well we got a transition. We're going to move on to an international news story for our next topic. Uh, assessing the high stakes meeting today, uh, Wednesday, between President Biden and President Xi Jinping of China. Uh, their in person meeting will be the first time Mr. Biden and Mr. Xi have talked in a year, and Xi's first visit to America soil since 2017. Uh, and if you haven't noticed, it's been a little tense over the last year. So here's a quick summary of some of what's happened in the last year. So remember, we had the spy balloon incident, lots and lots of chatter about a potential war in Taiwan. Uh, China has dramatically increased its nuclear arsenal. It's not getting a lot of conversation. Uh, the U.S. has cracked down on China's access to advanced computer chips. China has been increasingly provocative in the South China Sea, including one incident recently where a Chinese fighter jet came within 10 feet of a U.S. B-52 bomber. Uh, the U.S. has looked to extend and develop an alliance structure across the Indo-Pacific that China sees as a Cold War tactic for trying to contain it. Uh, and all of the above has led to increased nationalism at home. Uh, for instance, Democrats and Republicans can hardly agree on anything other than they all want to be China hawks. Now, despite all of this, it does appear that Biden and Xi uh, may be seeing this visit as an opportunity to turn down the temperature. Uh, the expectations are very, very low for the meeting. Uh, the two sides will discuss a resumption of military to military communications, which were suspended in the summer of 2022 after Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan. Uh, there may be some discussions about a future commitment to keep artificial intelligence, AI software, out of their nuclear command and control systems. Also a good thing. Now, Jake Sullivan, the president's national security advisor, told reporters on Monday uh, that the relationship with China is, quote, about managing competition responsibly so that it does not veer into conflict. The way we achieve this is through intense diplomacy. He went on to say that's how we clear up misperceptions and avoid surprises. Now, Phil, that caught my attention, and it suggests that maybe both sides have come to realize that they need to be more responsible hegemons. What do you, what do you see going on here? I, I think I tend to see it. That, I mean, I, we'll, we'll see what comes of this. Yeah. Like you said, I mean, this is a very small step, but but every, yeah. you know, every shift has to begin with a step. And so I, I, I am hopeful that maybe that is where things are are, are directed or are, are heading. But yes, I, I think you're right. I tend to I think. There is some recognition, um, maybe in a way that hadn't been apparent before, of the extent to which these two countries need each other. And and this is, you know, in some ways, this is me thinking off the top of my head as we sit here and talk. But, I, you know, we, we've come out of a, a, a period of time, uh, you know, a, a sort of six-year span, um, in which tensions with China have increased. Um, that's due to, you know, Trump going after China, you know, and, and to give Trump credit, like China, there was, you know, there were lots of unfair trade practices, lots of stuff that Trump was saying were was accurate in terms of, of his criticism of China, um, in, in terms of his criticism of their economic policies, I should say, when it drifted yeah, right. towards uh, some of the other stuff uh, problematic. But you have those tensions and then you had... Um, the pandemic, which I think sort of revealed to the United States, for instance, how dependent we were on China in a way that made us anxious. And so you have, you know, a growth in China who, you know, China's sort of rattling, uh, trying to figure out where they fit, pushing back against U.S. leadership in the world because they're, they've achieved this, you know, new, uh, you know, sort of world power standing 
the United States wanting to pull back a little bit, I think out of fear of that Chinese growth, out of fear of the dependence that became clear after the, the pandemic. And then what we've had is, I think now we've had enough time for both sides to realize that the dependence is, is there's downsides to it, but there's some real essential, you know, uh, there's some essential yeah. elements to it as well. And, and I think this, this can't happen without the struggles in the Chinese economy, right? This is back to sort of two yeah. level games where she is, is playing international politics, but he's also, you know, facing increased criticism at home as their economy struggles. Um, and so I think maybe there is this, you know, there is some element of rationality here in which you have the, when you get past all of the sort of saber rattling, there is this recognition that, Ooh, this is like, if this goes wrong, the price we pay, whether it's military, economic or whatever is so steep that there has to be, you know, some willingness to kind of step back and reassess. Now that may be giving them entirely too much credit. I mean, the, the Chinese yeah. government, the Chinese media had been sort of playing up the positives of the United States this week, which is kind of a yeah. shift. And that could indicate, you know, something about how, you know, the, 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 intention to sort of, you know, reassess on China's part, it could just be protection for Xi as he goes to China. Like, how do yeah. you go visit the United States after you've been so critical of them? But um, again, I don't, I don't know that we can draw any conclusions yet, but I, I think there are some signs that maybe there's uh, uh, some signs of, of optimism yeah. here. I, what, what do you think? What's your take on all of this? Yeah, I, I, I agree, right? I think you, if we think back to the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, there were multiple points when both sides said, this is getting a little out of hand. Like, you know, post-Cuban Missile Cuban yes. missile Crisis, where everybody said, let's let's calm things down a little bit. And this, this feels like maybe one of those moments. And it's a big maybe, because we don't know. A week from now, there could be some incidents, some rhetoric, all of that. You know, there are other variables that can push this aside. But I think back prior to the uh, spy balloon incident, there was a plan for the Secretary of State, Anthony Anthony Blinken, to go over and have some of these conversations about de-escalation. And then the spy balloon turned the world into Stupidville, right? Where, you know, the United States is shooting everything out of the sky, let's say in a provocative way, right? You know, China, it sounds like this was an accident and it's still, China's still screwed up, but, you know, Biden felt domestic pressure to overreact. And so it meant that you can't have any sensible conversations. And now maybe enough time has gone by where you can begin to have those conversations. It doesn't mean you address all the disagreements. I mean, Biden is going to continue to try to shore up alliances in you know the India-Pacific area. Uh, China is going to continue to be provocative in the South China Sea. But you hope that you can create a framework or a baseline so when there are incidents, if there is some sort of exchange where a plane gets too close or something like that, you can talk about it and prevent it from spiraling. And that's something you and I have talked a lot about. You know, the important thing is that there are established protocols to avoid a dangerous escalation. And I get the sense that this may be the beginning of that to say, hey, let's come up with some ground rules. Let's start to think through what comes in the future. And if that's the case, I welcome it. And I think it's a really good development. Yeah, I think, you know, your examples of, of the the Soviet example is really kind of an interesting one. I hadn't thought about that, but there there are these series of people throughout uh, the, the Cold War who sort of pushed back against 
there was this kind of monolithic image of the Soviet yeah. Union, right? That was set on our destruction. They couldn't be uh, appeased and all of this other stuff. And, and you had, a, you know, whether it was George Kennan early on or whether it was, you know, even um, uh, during the Nixon era, during detente or whether it yeah. was, you know, um, Ronald Reagan, right? This, this willingness to sort of recognize mm -hmm. that, hey, we, we are adversaries, but they also like, you know, have interests, right? Like we, we have to recognize that they have, um, yes. you know, a point of view as well and recognize that they're human because that opens the door for this ability, like in the Cuban Missile Crisis, for Kennedy and Khrushchev to have a conversation, right? Um, and I, I think you're exactly right. So e even these small things, even if it's, you know, even if nothing major comes out of it, it uh, an agreement on something really small is, is again, a, sort of a, an opening to, to the recognition that, hey, we can actually negotiate compromise we can come with our concerns, they can come with their concerns, and we can try to find common ground. And, you know, it, when you when you drift, like it seems like American politics has been towards, you know, they're sort of, you know, they're they're bad. And that's all the, that's all the complexity we need to um, to to in order to understand the situation. That's that is that's how you end up in a really dangerous spot. Well, this is interesting. As you were talking about that, it made me think about some of those. I was thinking about Nixon and Reagan and others. They often, and even Kennedy for that matter, Eisenhower, they enter office much more provocative. Yeah. And then during the course of their tenure, they become, uh, they transition from maybe hawks to doves. Yeah. I mean, Reagan is the great example of this. He starts his, his term calling, uh, you know, the Soviet Union, the evil empire. And by the end of his administration, he's asked that question. Do you still think, you know, he and Gorbachev are together. Do you still think they're an evil empire? And he says, no, I don't think yeah. that anymore. And so you wonder whether she and Biden, who've been in office, you know, long enough, especially she, whether they're starting to realize that, not that they're going to be friends but that maybe it's time to turn the temperature down a little bit so that they avoid the most dangerous things. And one other point, they're both facing a lot of domestic pressure. So mm -hmm. they have that in common where yeah. both sides, I mean, the, the nationalists in China and all of the nationalist Democrat and, and Republicans in the United States are pushing for a more hawkish position. And so you wonder whether these two leaders now maybe have some point where they say, actually, it's in both of our individual interests to try to deescalate just a mm -hmm. little bit. That's a really interesting uh, point about the, I mean, it, we political scientists point that out in other ways as well, that oftentimes the rhetoric of a candidate running for office, you know, it moderates mm -hmm. once they're in office. And um, yeah, you see that play out. I mean, even, even strangely enough, like even on the sort of opposite end of the, like when we're talking about like rational or strategic or people who learn, I don't, Donald Trump doesn't come to mind, but even whether it's, you know, North Korea, for instance, right, which with all yeah. the early on the fiery rhetoric that sort of you know, softens as he is in office, yeah. you know, over, over time. But yeah, I mean, there is something to, I, I don't know, maybe it's concerning that it, the, the takeaway in some ways is people who have actually had to deal with these issues and, and faced the complexity um, are able to recognize that complexity. Um, but politics doesn't sort of encourage yeah. that politics encourages this sort of black and white approach. And, and that's what I, you know, again, I see on the ads uh, for yeah. all the Republican candidates here in New Hampshire is, is this sort of deep demonization of China. And you're even even if China is like even if Chinese policy on the economy and human rights and all of that other stuff is bad, it, it is helpful to think of those as policy differences. Right. And right, that we're right. going to pursue our policy and we want to win. But that's different from, you know, they're again, the evil empire. Right. And, and so, um, yeah, I, it's it's 
I don't know. I mean, how, how optimistic are you that this is this meeting actually kind of, you know, sparks some of those conversations? I I don't expect much out of this meeting because they're not even agreeing to a joint transcript. So a lot of times when they have mm-hmm. these, you know, they come out and they they release something together and they say, we talked about this. And all that really is, is that we agree what the meeting was about. Right. It's, it's so it's like the base level. The United States and China are, are going to release their own version of that to say, here's what we thought the meeting was. So, again, we, we should have really low expectations. But but hopefully it leads to future sessions like this. And again, the, the differences between the two of them are dramatic, right? I mean, you know, control of the South China Sea is a big deal. And I don't think a couple conversations is going to fix that. You know, the United States, the Biden administration pushing its alliance structure into China's backyard is, is provocative, right? And I think it's probably the right position, but it's not something that's going to lead to a de-escalation. So they've got real challenges. I'm just hopeful that it can lead and maybe a little bit optimistic that it can lead to some sort of framework where they know how to talk about what they need to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, conver- any conversation, I mean, conversation is better than no conversation, right? I mean, yeah. it, it is, I, I think back to when I teach about the UN and, and the, one of the core principles of the UN is universal membership, right? We're not going to expel people for being bad actors. Right. We're not going right. to kick the North Koreas out. And even though that is, it feels like a, you know, you want to punish someone who acts bad. The core idea of the UN is that it's better to have everyone, even when they hate each other, even when they're, right. you know, right. not seeing eye to eye, it's better to have them in the same room talking talking about those things, even if it's, you know, hot and contentious. And I think that's the case here too. We are better off having the conversations than, you know, being sort of separate and and playing our own games and having our own rhetoric. And so, yeah, it's a positive step, even if it's a small one. That's good. Well, we should uh, transition uh, and maybe talk a little bit about the Supreme Court. Yeah, so positive. So we can talk about small positive steps, I guess. So, <laughs> yes, so yes. A- after seemingly never ending stories about the ethical shortcomings of the Supreme Court, including wealthy benefactors paying for trips and houses and motorhomes for Clarence Thomas, uh, he, he's not the only one who's who's had issues. But uh, uh, after all of that, the Supreme Court this week revealed its first ever formal code of contact. Conduct. Now, first of all, it's amazing to me that we've made it almost 250 years into this country's history before getting a formal code of conducts for the nation's top court. But here we are. So uh, the, the new code, um, quote, contains sections codifying that justices should not let outside relationships influence their official conduct or judgment, spelling out restrictions on their participation in fundraising and reiterating limits on accepting of gifts. It also states that justices should not to any substantial degree use judicial resources or staff for non-official activities. But I mean, so all of that's good, right? These are all positive things, but, <laughs> and it is a big, but there is no formal enforcement mechanism. And the, the judgments about what violates this new code are still entirely left up to the court itself. And in many cases, it's left up to individual justices to decide things like whether they should recuse themselves from, from cases. So, you know, one critic likened the new code to quote, erecting a dam with a chain link fence. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to imagine that a formal but self-enforced code of ethics is any more effective
effective than an unspoken self-enforced code of ethics. In fact, Ian Milheiser for Vox argued this week that this this code is actually worse than no code because it helps to legitimize unethical actions Mm, of of Thomas and others. So, so Bill, this is, you know, is this a positive step? Is, is no, is, is a weak code better than no code at all? Like, what do you, like, how do you interpret this? What do you take from, from the fact that the court, you know, maybe it felt enough pressure that they had to act? Well, I think it's better than nothing, but that's about (laughs) it. Just barely, just barely better than nothing. Well, and I I think it's what I, what I take away from this is that the pressure, uh, all of the good reporting on the Supreme Court and the activities of the Supreme Court justices was really valuable. Like it, it put a little sunlight on something that hadn't seen any sunlight in a long time. And we saw that there were practices that were troubling and a variety of justices, you know, both liberal and conservative, but uh, you know, Thomas, I think is the most egregious character. Um, So I think, that was valuable. It's valuable that we're having these conversations. Does this uh, code of ethics solve all those problems? No, right? Because as you said, uh, there is no enforcement mechanism. So, you know, we study government a lot. You know, I also like human behavior and law and all of that. And the one what's so important to to have compliance is you have to have some enforcement mechanism. Um, This is really just sort of a verbal recognition that they're going to try to be better. Um, And we humans can't self-regulate. Right. There there needs to be oversight. That was the whole premise of the U.S. government checks and balances. And and so for me, this is the beginning of a conversation that probably has to end with some sort of congressional oversight, uh, some sort of there should be a permanent person whose job is maybe like an inspector general who watches over these things, right? And that the justices put in their annual reports and they take a look at it. You create another level of bureaucracy, which some people say is problematic, but you have to do that to avoid corruption. So, you know, I think this is a positive step, but it's not the finishing step, right? I think it's just sort of, it's it's the court saying we know something's coming and we're hoping to preempt it by doing it ourselves. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think it solves any of the, the long-term challenges. Well, how about yourself? Where are you at on all this? So, yeah, I mean, my my take on this is I, I think I mean, the first thought I have is that this, I think, is an is evidence of just how bad it was, because the, these I mean, the, there have been calls for some form of, you know, ethics, uh, you know, regulation for a really long time for the court. And they've been able to do nothing about. It. So to go back to what you were saying about, like, the effectiveness of the reporting. Right. I mean, this is I, I think it just shows that the court itself is is feeling pressure or, you know, we talked about in the past about how one of the potential checks on the court in the past has just been the fear of of essentially regulation right that that or that uh Congress might in some way step in. And so um, it feels like that's we've, we've sort of sort of gotten to that point, the fact that the court is willing to do this. So, uh, I mean, that it, again, that's just it, it, the stories, particularly about Thomas, had gotten so like blatantly bad that I, it felt like it feels like the court couldn't not act as much as they wanted to not act. Having said that, this response feels a little bit like we talked about, you know, coaching uh, the coaching jobs at the beginning of this uh, um uh, episode. And I feel like, you know, whenever there's an opening for a head coaching job, like everyone comes out and denies it and other people give their coaches votes of confidence and none of it means anything. It's like designed to sort of take the pressure off. And that feels like that's what this is. It's a, it's a, it's designed to take the pressure off without any sort of real binding, uh, power. And, and I, and I think, um, you know, in the end, I, it's the fact that it's kind of toothless is, uh, really problematic. Now, 
I don't know if I would say that it's worse than no code. I, I agree with you that there has to be, um, you know, I, for real oversight to happen, there there needs to be something, right? Congressional oversight in in some way of of ethical of ethics, or or even the creation of an independent body that oversees the ethics of of the court or whatever. But um, uh, the the um, I, I do think that having a written code of conduct is is better than none because up to this point you can point to the i don't know the stuff that tom that clarence thomas is doing and we can say but you know other judges would be held accountable for this but there is no formal code of con- now we can say they published a code of conduct and we can look at it and we can compare it and we can say look you're falling short of your own published code of conduct so even if there's not teeth to it i mean Again, I don't foresee a situation in which we are impeaching a Supreme Court justice anytime soon, but it's made easier by the fact that you can point to this concrete thing and say, look, even even the rules that you came up with, you're falling short of. So it, it, it will constrain more than a non-existent code of conduct, I guess. So I, right. I mean, it's better than nothing, but but it doesn't feel like it's a whole lot better than nothing at this point. No, I I agree with that. You know, we talk a lot about norms and you love norms. A code of conduct establishes norms and it writes them down. Uh, And I think the other really important check here isn't necessarily Congress, although I think Congress has a role to do this, is is journalism and and journalists. And what we've seen over the last couple of years is that for a long, long time, you know, journalists didn't really cover the court. They covered what the court decided, but they didn't cover the conduct of the individual jurists. And now we're starting to see that the Supreme Court jurists are being watched by journalists. And I think that's an important oversight, right? Even if, if Congress isn't going to get involved, and hopefully they will, the fact that people are paying attention when when Clarence Thomas, you know, yeah. goes on a long trip or gets a new, you know, uh, a new, what is it, RV or something, like people are asking these questions and, and that is also a check on some of their power. So I think that's valuable. If you're John Roberts, you can't complain about like declining how people are not treating the court or whatever, worry about declining yeah. legitimacy of the court and then, you know, turn a blind eye to this. I, it would also be it would be really fascinating to see or the to hear or uh, to be a fly on the wall of. Yes, you know, there, I mean, like we've pointed out there and a lot of the reporting has pointed out this is not just a Clarence Thomas thing. I think it was it was a Sotomayor who used aids uh to like help promote her book or something so <laughs> which is also problematic but of a diff- very different scale than having yeah. all sorts of wealthy benefactors you know basically fund you mo- like you know feed you money uh launder money through your mom's house or whatever <laughs> right. but yes um but it, it does feel like you know this is it is affecting the entirety of the court and it would be fascinating to you know to hear what to what extent are the other justices essentially like, you know, furious at the Clarence Thomases who are like, look, you, you're giving the entire court a bad name. Um, and we're all having to sort of make these unprecedented steps because of the sort of crappy actions of a handful of people. Yes, totally. I I completely agree with that. Um, yes. Well, should we transition to our next topic? Yeah, it feels like we've had a whole episode of, of like stupid stuff that's happening, but I, I feel like we can top it with the true, you know, uh, you know, uh, authentic, authentic, official politics lab. What's more stupid game? This is absolutely right. Yes. And uh, I'm having some technical issues here, Phil, but I, I'm going to resolve them. We're going to keep moving forward. <laughs> All right. Uh, my headphones went out and you'll be proud to say that I uh, to know that I fixed them before uh, they That's got real bad. Amazing. 
That's so, pretty amazing. On the fly, um, you, you made adjustments. Yeah, this is right. So, okay, all right, here we are. So we're our final game today. Is we're going to play uh, What's More Stupid. And for, for regular listeners, they know this game. Uh, th- I present three circumstances or three uh, recent developments. And then Phil and I use all of our best, most amazing political science tools to determine what is, in fact, the most stupid thing. And then the wonderful thing about it is this. We've got audio clips for all three <laughs> incidents. So I'm going to start with incident number one, which I am calling Smurfgate. And I, I, am, I should trademark that, Smurfgate. Um, And what happened here is Representative James Comer, who's a Republican from Kentucky, got into a heated exchange uh, with Representative Jared Moskowitz, I don't even know how you pronounce his name, who's a Democrat from Florida, calling him a smurf during a Tuesday hearing on oversight of the General Services Administration. They were discussing a loan that Joe Biden had given his brother way back when he wasn't in office. Comer had raised the loan as part of the Republican impeachment inquiry, suggesting that there was something uh, illicit about that. Well, during the hearing, Moskowitz referred to a loan that Comer had given to his own family, and Comer didn't appreciate the comparison. The two engaged in a testy exchange uh, with Comer eventually saying, quote, you look like a smurf. <laughs> and Moskowitz responded by calling him Gargamel, who's a villain. Now, Phil, that's a whole lot of stupid. You, you've got some good audio of this, right? <laughs> Let's play it. Never loaned my brother money. Don't have an LLC. But you and Goldman, who is Mr. Trust Fund, Continue to try to discredit. No, I'm not going to give you your time back. We can stop the clock. You all continue to. You look like a Smurf here, just going around and all this stuff. Now listen, Mr. Chairman, you have. No, 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 hold hold on. If we're we're not on time, we spew disinformation. You you, you have gone on TV and said the president did something illegal. You're doing. Oh boy! So there you go. That's just a small piece of it. (laughs) <laughs> that is great. That that is. I mean, I, we maybe we can come back. Uh, do you want to talk about that, or you, should we go through the rest of them and then do an assessment? Well, I I, t- I like when we talk a little bit about yes. them as we go through each. Let's one. do so it. I, let's 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 break it down a little bit. Yes. I, so my this is I, I this first uh, one immediately takes me back to your brilliance. A number uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, it feels like probably years ago in breaking down that there are different types of stupid, right? Different yes. levels of stupid and different ways of understanding stupid. And this um, absolutely qualifies as stupid. It's, uh, on one hand, on one level, it's stupid that members of Congress are having this sort of like fight with each other yeah um and and the the level of i don't know uh, the lack of of formality or whatever but um on a whole different level where this raises to pretty stupid is that calling someone a smurf because they're wearing a blue suit is one of the dumbest insults that i can like think of someone uh someone coming up with i that's that's like stupid on its own level as well I agree. The, you know, the, the stages of stupid, that's that's a really stupid thing, calling somebody. And actually, ref- I think it's stupid to bring in Smurfs. Like, wh- the Smurfs were in, like, what, the 80s or 90s? I don't remember when the Smurfs were. Like, who's who's bringing the Smurfs back onto a congressional debate? So, like, the idea of just going to the Smurfs strikes me as really stupid, too. It seems like an obvious reflection of just how frustrated he was with the situation <laughs> that like he's like pissed that this guy has pointed out his hypocrisy and like he's flustered. And the worst thing he can come up with is you look like a smurf. <laughs> that's right. That's pretty. That's a, that's a classic stupid. So, all right, let's jump to our second one, which involved Tennessee Republican Tim Burkett uh, and Kevin McCarthy. Now, uh, Burkett gave an interview and, and he suggested that Kevin McCarthy, as he was walking down 
down the halls of the uh, Congress, uh, uh, basically elbowed him in the kidney, gave him a kidney blow. Um, he just elbowed me in the kidneys, I said, uh, Burkett. It was deliberate. It was just a cheap shot. Uh, now, McCarthy <laughs> denied this, saying, like, well, I wouldn't hit him in the kidney. Maybe our shoulders hit. Uh, but he ran up to me and accused me of that. I was, you know, he did, I, see, I didn't know what I was talking about. So, all right, Phil, another circumstance. And this is on the same day as Smurfgate, where one Republican member is accusing another Republican member of basically punching him in the kidney. We got some audio? We do have a little audio on this one, too. Explain to us what happened with you and Kevin McCarthy. Well, I was doing an interview um, with um, Claudia from NPR, uh, a lovely lady, and she was asking me a question. And, and at that time, I uh, got elbowed in the back. And it kind of caught me off guard because it was a clean shot to the kidneys. And I turned back, and there was there was Kevin, and um, and I, I for a minute I was kind of what the heck just happened. And then I, um, you know, I, I chased after him. Of course, he's a as I've stated many times, he's a he's a bully with seventeen million dollars in a security detail. <laughs> now, he- it was Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> this this is, you know, this one also fits the different categories of stupid uh, in that I don't know whether this happened or not. Like, I, I neither of us can know whether McCarthy really uh, hit him in the kidney or not. But for the sake of argument, I'm going to assume he did. And that is stupid, right? We all know those moments where, like, whether it's a sporting event you're playing or a game you're playing where you get a little cheap shot in. And it is entirely possible And stupid that McCarthy had his chance and saw, like, I'm going to elbow this guy in the kidney, bam, right? Which is just stupid because you can't do that. You know, you're you know, you're going to get caught for it. So it's a different kind of stupid from the first one. But I think this is this is also stupid. This is this is uh, so this this raises to a different level of stupid. I I think this one is stupider or maybe. And well, I I, 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 I wrestle with these and I may change my mind as we go through, but it's stupider because it actually involves physical contact contact. It feels, I mean, the other one feels middle schooly. I don't know. Calling someone a Smurf feels like less than middle school. This like the actual, like throwing of an elbow feels very like, you know, uh, middle schooly. And, and the extent to which I, I don't know. I mean, I, whether, so if it's accurate, if he's actually threw an elbow at somebody, that's just, it's so bad. So stupid. Um, if it's not accurate, I mean, it's also, I don't know. Do you, you really think he did this like with intentionality? Like it, it's so hard for me. This is where I have a hard time wrapping my head around yeah. because I, on one hand, I, I like totally believe that this is the state of the Republican party and the Kevin McCarthy version of the Republican party. Yeah. There's another part of me that thinks like what actually happened was he was, you know, accidentally bumped him or something as he walked by. And this guy is talking about how it was a blow to my <laughs> kidney or whatever. Like, <laughs> which is stupid. Another part of me yeah. thinks it's totally like being blown out of proportion as well. But I, I don't know, maybe I should, I should believe him. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I think about this, like Kevin McCarthy, I don't know if there's anybody who loved being speaker of the house more than Kevin McCarthy. Mm. It was his dream job. And then this guy, basically out of spite, that just gets him out of his most famous job, embarrasses him, right? You feel like McCarthy's like just waiting for an opportunity to punch this guy in the kidney. So again, we have no facts. We're all speculation here. But either way, either, you know, whether McCarthy did it, which is stupid, or the guy who accidentally gets his shoulder bumped and then he's like, oh, my kidney. That's stupid, too. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) All right. Let's go to incident number three. Uh, this is uh, this one's just unbelievable. Again, all of these things happen. 
happened on the same day, Wednesday of this week. A fistfight nearly broke out in the Senate Healthy Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee hearing. I love that that it's that particular hearing as well. Uh, the incident was between Republican Senator uh, Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma uh, and President of the Teamsters Union, Sean O'Brien. Uh, the exchange occurred when Mullen, a former MMA fighter, I didn't know anything about this guy, uh, recalled an interaction he had with O'Brien in June on Twitter. Um now, Phil is going to play the audio, but I think the, there's a lot of things to listen to. But make sure you listen to Bernie Sanders at the end, <laughs> trying to keep these two from fighting because both of them want to go. All right, here we go. The Tough Guy Act and these Senate hearings, you know where to find me, any place, any time, cowboy. That's so him this is a time, this is a reading a tweet. If you want to run your mouth, we can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. Okay, that's fine. Perfect. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, hold on. Oh, oh, stop it. Is that your right. solution every poll? No, no, sit down. Sit down. Look at you. You know, you're a United States senator. Sit down. Active. Oh, okay, okay. Sit down, please. All right. Can I respond? Mr. Hold Shem. it. Hold it. <laughs> <laughs> Bernie, like you just feel for Bernie, right? I mean, he's like, wait, wait, how did this happen? How, how is a U.S. senator like literally uh, proposing to fight uh, the Teamsters guy on, you know, in the middle of a hearing? Oh, this is, Phil, this is deeply stupid. This is deeply stupid. This one is like, so I, you've not heard of Mark Wayne Mullen. I am familiar with him yeah. because of living on the Oklahoma border for many years. Um, I saw many Mark Wayne Mullen uh, ads when I was living in Texas. So yeah, this is not uh, particularly surprising or or shocking to me. But um, yeah, I mean, this is this is like I, if, this is I had not planned to do this, but like we it feels like we began with elementary school insults. Yeah. We went to like a middle school throwing elbow insults, and this feels very like high school, right? Like you yeah. you re- you said this about me on Twitter, and we're going to meet outside. <laughs> right, right. It is the fact that that. I mean, this is uh, (laughs) the fact that two men almost came to blows on the on the, you know, in this. uh, This isn't the you know, this is in hearing room of the Senate is monumentally stupid. The fact that a that a sitting U.S. senator would read critical tweets and like. His response, like again, the the guy's taking you know whatever critiquing him, but to bring that onto the the official record of the Senate and then challenge him to uh to like take him up on his offer to have a fist fight is <laughs> unbelievable. It's this terribly is like, stupid. This is like the poster of like toxic masculinity yes. right here. These two guys yes. getting uh getting worked up about this. What what what's your take on this one? Yes, yes, I, I find this one. Uh, the most stupid, but in a different way, right? So there's two levels of stupid going on here. There is exactly as you said, the sort of high school dum dums fighting, like, and I love, and I love, but that the the senator has it's like premeditated. His speech is yeah. like, I'm going to challenge this guy to a fight in the Senate, and of course the Teamster guy's like, bring it on, man. That's why I'm here, <laughs> right? which is sort of that's stupid, albeit a little funny. But then uh, Mullen has been out and he's fundraising on this. He, I mean, he's been on multiple different airways the last 24 hours and I sent you a clip earlier where he was talking about that if he gets in a fight he has no problem biting people right so this is a U.S. (laughs) senator who thinks his 
political future is, uh, you know, strengthened by threatening to fight the Teamsters guy, talking about how he likes to bite people. Like, this is like monumentally, you know, the U.S. democracy looks stupid yes. because of that. And so for, for that level, I would say this one the most stupid. But they're all similarly stupid in terms of the juvenile nature of them all. They're all similarly stupid. This is the stupidest of the bunch <laughs> yes. in which you have two people challenging each other to a fight. I mean, it, it shows it is like it does sum up the state of kind of Republican politics, I think, yeah. to some extent that the tough guy act is that it's again like, you know, that yeah. we're not going to reward people for legislation or moving things forward. We're going to yeah. reward someone for this. Like, uh, you know, I'll, I'll kick your ass approach. To, to <laughs> That's politics. a great point. Yes. No, it's, so it's I'll, so I'm, I'm going to throw out. A th I had not also had not planned on this or thought of this, but I'm going to throw out my my actual yeah. conclusion. So it seems like you think the third one is and I agree the third one's the worst, but I'm going to throw out a fourth option. Yeah, which is to say that they are all collectively represent like the stupidity of where we are. The fact that yeah. I, somehow it had not I had not like fully wrapped my head around that all three of these are happening at, at the same time yes. on the same day. These are all three Republican members of Congress on the same day, like lashing out, you know, yeah. calling names, like either throwing elbows, threatening to get in a fight with a teamster. Like this is like, this is the stupidity of American politics right now in which none of this is actually like, none of the stuff we played was actually like really about sort of the no. substance of policy. Right. Oh, you know, I think that's a good way of putting it. You're right. This is this is a deeper reflection on the Republican Party, toxic masculinity. I mean, I, we, we talked about it in one of my classes today because the students are like, are you kidding me? This really happened. Um, all of it. Right. Yeah. Just just uh, sort of an indictment of the of our democracy as well. <laughs> I will say, you know, we talk a lot about like online, like there are trolls on there on Twitter and whatnot. Um, but O'Brien, the Teamsters guy, he is like the he epitome of a troll because he was just playing the senator, right? He was intentionally trying to get under his skin. And if a senator, like you get criticized all the time. Part of your job yeah. is to let that roll off your back and not get upset. And like, nope. And so the trolls oftentimes win. And I think that guy comes off looking better uh, just because he got under his skin. A hundred percent. You watch the video. You can find the video online as well. And the video, like you can see it in which Mark Wayne Mullins like worked up and the yeah. teamster guy is just totally calm. And he's just <laughs> like, just poking him with, with his, with his comments. Like he's just <laughs> trying to get him riled up. And there's there's and what appears to be like two of his teamster buddies behind who are just laughing and like soaking it up. And you're like, this is the Senate. This I don't know. Yeah. Yep. A lot of stupid going on. All right. Well, we should wrap up on that point. Phil, uh, you want to remind everybody how they can stay connected with us? Yeah. So you can go to the politicslab.com and you can find uh, old old episodes, but this week I've I've got uh, you know links to um, the the article, the reporting from New York Times on Trump's uh, um, uh, plans to build camps and deport people, um, reporting on his his comments about vermin, um, uh, and then an article about the Biden uh, G meeting, and then um, uh, a couple of articles on the, the including the Vox one we talked about about the Supreme Court. Um, code of ethics. So if you want to read a little bit more about those, you can find all of that at thepoliticslab.com. You can also find contact information, social media information, all of that stuff there as well. That sounds fantastic. All right, Phil, I will see you next week. Bye, Bill. Enjoy the rest of your birthday week. Will do so. All right. Bye, Phil.